Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash church leaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash church leaders and join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And in this series, we are exploring the church's stance on LGBTQ issues. This has been a pressing conversation for some time, and we believe it is only growing more important that believers and church leaders engage in this conversation with both love and wisdom. There are many questions that Christians are wrestling with, including what does it mean to love someone in the LGBTQ community while not compromising what the Bible says? Can someone be both gay and Christian? Should we use someone's preferred pronouns? And how can pastors best address these topics with care from the pulpit? We'll explore questions like these from multiple angles, theological, academic, cultural, and social. We'll also hear from the local pastor's perspective. Our guests are more than experts. For some of them, this conversation is extremely personal. We hope that this series will be informative and will help you navigate this challenging area of life and ministry with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And now, let me introduce you to this week's guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Gilson. Rachel serves on the leadership team for Theological Development Culture at Carew. She's a graduate of Yale, earned her Master of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and is currently pursuing her doctorate. Rachel is the author of Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next. And her writing has featured in a variety of publications, including Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition. Now, in this episode, Rachel shares her story of how a stolen book impacted her life as a same-sex attracted atheist, and ultimately how she came to devote her life to following Jesus. Rachel and I also discuss the importance of being surrounded by a grace-filled community of believers as she provides insights on how the church can meaningfully minister to those who identify as LGBT. We talk about the one question which might be the most important and why that question is often overlooked. You will definitely want to share this one with your entire ministry team, so be sure to pass it along. And now, won't you please join me in my conversation with Rachel Gilson. Rachel, it is so good to have you with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, definitely. Now, Rachel, let's get to know you a bit. You are the author of the book, Born Again This Way. And, and any of our listeners who might be familiar with you might be familiar with that book, um, but many may not be as familiar with you and your story. So could you take a moment to share about your background and what led you to write this particular book? Yeah, I would be, I would be glad to. So my background into this conversation uh, wouldn't have been obvious to me as a 17-year-old. I, um, I grew up in coastal California, so it's kind of a conservative area, but my family was not church-going at all. So I didn't identify with any faith tradition, let alone Christianity. And, and also by the time 
I was getting ready to go off to college, uh, I was a pretty convinced atheist. Like I just thought religion was for stupid people who didn't know how to think for themselves. Uh, and also in high school, I realized, oh, the way that maybe I should feel about young men is actually how I feel about other young women. And so you know, this was back when Will and Grace was still edgy, not nostalgic. So it was a little like, oh, it, <laughs> is this allowed? Is this a thing? But you know, I was like, well, it doesn't seem to be wrong. And gosh, it really seems to make me happy. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go with it. Uh, so with those two things in mind, a strong atheism and a realization that I, I want to marry a woman someday wasn't exactly your poster child for someone to write a book like Born Again This Way. Uh, so I accepted an offer to go to Yale College, which is in Connecticut, which is very cold. Uh, I wonder sometimes if I knew how unhappy the cold makes me, if I would have said yes. But, you know, that's where I ended up, and I'm still in New England. Uh, and during my freshman year, I was just a little, uh, uh, let's just say when you go to a middling public high school in California and go to one of the best universities in the world, be a, a rude wake-up call about <laughs> one's own intellectual prowess. So showed up there, got a little battered around in that direction. My girlfriend also broke up with me. So I was kind of just a sad little puddle of woe is me, kind of casting around for who am I? What, what am I supposed to do now? And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to turn to Jesus because I didn't believe in Jesus, you know. But during a lecture on Descartes, you, you I mean, obviously, so many of us are familiar with, I think, therefore I am. And the lecturer was explaining, wow, this is how Descartes proves the existence of God. And I was sitting in the audience thinking, that's such a stupid proof for the existence of God, <laughs> which I still think. <laughs> but when I was sitting there, I thought, oh, what if there are other good proofs? And it kind of sent me down this rabbit hole. I ended up, you know, late at night reading about Jesus on my giant clunky Dell laptop, transfixed really by this character that I'd thought of as cartoonish it was actually quite compelling but I also felt like well my sexuality is a barrier to even being interested in Jesus as a character I wasn't even at the place where I necessarily wanted to follow him and so the only two people I knew at Yale who identified as Christians were these two uh, women who were dating each other and one of them was training to be a Lutheran minister so I thought okay well probably they know something that could be helpful to me uh, I met them through marching band, which is nice. a clue that I'm not very cool. So, <laughs> so I talked to them and they were like, oh yeah, it's all been, it's all been a big misunderstanding Like the Bible actually supports monogamous same-sex relationships. And they gave me a packet explaining those interpretations. And I love a packet. So I was excited. I, you know, I took it back to my room and I was like, if there's a, if this is true, like that, that would be incredible. And so I, I remember reading through the packet of information and thinking, gosh, this sounds really good. I thought, well, okay, maybe I should also compare it to the Bible itself. And I didn't own a Bible at this point. I was pulling it up online and kind of comparing the Bible to this packet back and forth and thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> don't actually match in the way that I was hoping. So then I kind of felt like I had hit a dead end. A little while after that, I happened to be in the room of a friend of mine who was a non-practicing Catholic. Um, she was getting something out of her room and I was standing in her doorway, looking at her bookshelf, judging her, which is one of my favorite hobbies. And she had a copy of this book on her bookshelf called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Yes. And I hadn't been raised on Narnia, but like the title itself was interesting to me. So I just decided to steal the book because I was too embarrassed to ask my friend for it. 
It was actually in the middle of reading Mere Christianity uh, in the library one day between classes. I was confronted with, oh my goodness, not only does God exist, but like the God who made me exists, who is holy. And I sat there thinking, oh my goodness, like I'm in, I'm sexually immoral. I lie for fun. I'm mean to people. I'm reading a stolen book, you know, so like all the evidence in the guilty category was very clear. But I also recognized, I think the spirit made clear to me at that time, well, the, the only way to be safe was to run towards Jesus, not away from him. Mm. Like he had placed himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me. And so I thought, first, I thought, I don't want to become a Christian. That's really lame. <laughs> But second, I also thought, I don't think I'm going to get a better deal than this. Like this seems, this this seems right. like my only uh, my only hope actually. And so, kind of you know, I bowed my head. I didn't have a nice pastor helping me out, right? And I bowed my head and was like, oh, fine, I'll be a Christian. And then I went to class. And um, you know, my introduction to the evangelical subculture was pretty fun. Uh, you know, I learned all kinds of useful things, but it was a real. Uh, it's a really important question for me in the early days. Like, what am I supposed to do with the fact that I'm now a disciple of Christ, but my same-sex attraction isn't going anywhere? And it's been 17 years and my same-sex attraction hasn't gone anywhere. So part of my path to writing Born Again This Way was just my own um, years of reading the Bible, making mistakes, reading the Bible, being in community, and just trying to figure out not, not just how can we survive as disciples with same-sex attraction but how can we actually thrive in christ yeah that, that's an incredible story rachel um and it's it's just cool i love to always hear someone's testimony because you can see just the, the little the little things the little providential moments um you know you you cast a glance over to that bookshelf and seeing mere christianity just being captured by that title and and deciding to steal the book, which is classic, right? So just seeing how God is is always at work in our lives, even when we may not recognize that he's at work. And so it's just oh, absolutely. a testimony to that. Uh, I'm curious, Rachel, so as you were you know, processing on this journey, how did Jesus really give you strength to say no to your same-sex desires and yes mm -hmm. to him? Isn't that the most important question, actually? <laughs> yeah. Might be the only one we need to answer on some level. So I really wrestled early on. It was clear to me that the Bible said no to same-sex lust and sexual relationships. And I've since learned Greek and Hebrew, and it turns out it still says no. Okay, fine. I never, I've never struggled with that part. But early on, I struggled with why does God say no to this? Like way before love is love was a phrase, I was sort of like, I don't really understand. It doesn't seem harmful at all, in fact. I kind of went through this little negotiating with the Lord, you know, like, oh, if you would just tell me why you say no to things that, you know, then I would obey with perfect joy and what, I mean, <laughs> garbage, of course, but right, right. I was trying to negotiate with the Lord. And uh, it was during that time, the Lord was really pressing on me, kind of like, what if, what if the most important question isn't, why do I say no to this? Although that's not an unimportant question, but what if, what if even more important is, can you trust the one who's asking? Hmm. Because if you're only willing to obey when you agree and understand, then maybe the God you're interested in serving is yourself and not me. That's good. Yeah. And so, well, that was convicting, right? Right, um, right. And I kept going back again and again, actually to the story of the garden. Because when you think about 
what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, um, it would make so much more sense if the one prohibition he had given them, you know, he gives them this grand vision, this wonderful place, a great partner. In his one prohibition, we would have been like, yes, good. If he'd said, uh, here's the rule, guys, don't murder each other. Right, right. Right, because we sort of get like murders intuitively wrong or whatever. Yes. If you don't know murders intuitively wrong, right, like you should get help. <laughs> but his rule is, hey, don't eat this fruit related to the knowledge of evil or you'll die. Right, like even vegans eat fruit. So maybe actually even before sin entered the world, um, following God is about trust and mm. not necessarily about whether we get it. Because there's this is exactly where the serpent pressed Eve. He got her to use her data, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the fruit looks good. It's certainly going to, it's going to taste good. It's desirous to make me wise. Those are good things. And the only thing she had on the other side is God's word saying, this will kill you. So she had to make a decision. And it felt so much like my own decision. Like I had all these reasons why like I should express my sexual desires in the way that felt natural, right? Like I had all this data. The only thing I had on the other side was God's word saying, this is deadly for you. Mm. So I was pressed, like, can I, so it, what it forced me into was, can I trust him? Because if I make it about his rules, then it's like those Apple terms and services that I say that I've read when I click agree. But, not, you know, like I'm just, this is not that. These are these are the words of a of a father. These are the words of a lover, right? These are, these are connected to his character. They're not arbitrary or cruel. And so what it did was it forced me to press back into the person of Christ and say, is he trustworthy? Mm. And again and again, not only through his death, but but also even just from his life and the fact that he came in the first place when he didn't have to, that's what helped me ultimately say yes. Because you can't, you can't only say no. Right, right. You have to say yes. And, and a yes to Christ is the only strength I know. Yeah, that's so well said, Rachel. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what your life kind of looked like once you began saying that yes in terms of um, your sexuality or even your understanding of, like you said, um, you, you had some people that you knew there at Yale that um, affirmed that, you know, it could be That's a, a monogamous yep. same-sex relationship. So how did you kind of wrestle through through that? Because I'm sure there were like competing narratives, obviously, and, that, and you had yeah. to sort through that. So talk to us a little bit about that process. Well, I think the number one thing that helped me other than the theological position I just uh, laid out for you mm -hmm. was that I had a community of people who loved me and loved Jesus. It's awesome. Yeah. And they were committed to what the scriptures said about a traditional sex ethic, but more than that, they were committed to me. Mm. Like the first couple of years of my walk with Christ in terms of obedience in this area were like an open dumpster fire. You know, if I were my 35 year old campus minister self meeting with my 19 year old self, I'd be like, this girl is not going to make it. <laughs> Let's just be clear. Right. So part of the reason I was able to make it was because I knew I was loved by these other believers and they called me to the best things. I never felt shamed. I never felt scolded it really was grace and truth. And if someone in my, if someone actually in my closest community had inserted doubt in God's word right at that time, I think it would have kicked my feet right out from under me. Mm. So I, I needed a lot of support in order to develop that muscle of obedience. So 
that my my siblings in Christ were God's incredible gift to me. Yeah, that, that's beautiful, Rachel. And, and to kind of press in a little there, can you talk to us a bit about what advice do you have for, for Christ followers for how to um, love their LGBTQ neighbors um, and, and love them well? And yeah. how, how can we better just, just engage, interact, and point people, just, just as you said, point people to the grace and the love of, of Christ? Yeah, well, I think it, it's really, in, in terms of my community, I had already decided to follow Christ, right? So we have a different permission to discuss what is required of someone when they're following Christ when, they, when she said yes to Christ, right? So I had mm-hmm. made that decision. And so my community was committed to helping me uh, grow, just like I was committed to helping them grow. It's not like I was the only one receiving correction. I was right, right. giving it, right? I was empowered to be doing these things together. It's a little different sometimes when we're talking about uh, the gay people in our life or the trans people in our life who, who do not follow Christ, I think occasionally there's this panic or there's this fear. Like if I don't make it clear what God thinks about X, Y, or Z, then I'm not yet permission to share the gospel with them. Or like, I mean, I need to make sure they know because I sure wouldn't want them to follow Jesus unless they knew. I'm not really sure where this comes from. It's hmm. not typically how we share the gospel with anybody else. Right. That's true. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it creates completely unnecessary barriers if we believe that the gospel is the good news of salvation to everyone that believes, then we have permission and the freedom to just love the people in our lives and share the gospel early and often. And so, unfortunately, many Christians and many churches have historically and even today treated LGBT people with, let's just call it contempt, right? Mm Mm-hmm been some incredibly abusive things that have happened and even just some stupid and unhelpful things. We run the whole gamut. So obviously there are going to be gay people in your life who are wary of Christians and they have a right to be wary. If we act like, Oh, why are they nervous? It's like, well, think about the history for a second. You would be nervous too. Mm. So when someone in our life asks us, well, what do you think the Bible says about, whatever, or what do you think about? What does your church think about me or same-sex marriage or whatever it is, right? What I want us to be able to do is first, like, thank them for asking, for trusting us to ask the question, like trusting us enough to ask us that question because that's bold enough. We can ask them why they're asking, but uh, I find it really helpful to say, I think that's a really important question. Maybe one of the most important And I don't think we can actually understand it if we don't understand more of who Jesus is. Mm. Like uh, his words about what's good news for our bodies don't make a lot of sense if you don't know who at all he is. I mean, I needed to trust Christ personally in order to have strength to obey. So uh, an answer about what marriage is or about what male and female is apart from who he is just kind of dangles in the air without power. And I found people are really responsive to that. Cause I'm not saying I never want to answer your question. What I'm saying is I think your question makes best sense embedded in a fuller picture. That's good. So I try to not bring up questions of sexuality unless the 
person I'm caring for, the person I'm in a relationship with, is bringing them up. Now, people have different strategies on that, but I just find in general, the church has been super eager to talk about positions and super reticent to actually love people in their lives. I'm not sure that's what we see when we observe Christ in the Gospels. That's good. That's golden, Rachel. You know, it's interesting that in ministry, um, I've had the opportunity to to engage and, and walk and, and disciple people who are, um, you know, same-sex attracted, wrestling with some of those things. And, and I remember often what I would encourage them and, and what I would say to them um, is let's, let's talk about your journey with Jesus. Yeah. And focus on their, their journey with you. You know, what, what's God teaching you? You know, what are you learning from God? How is God shaping and molding you? And, and just trusting really that the Holy Spirit would do the work of the Holy Spirit, yeah. you know, in that it wasn't my job, right? It was my job to continue to point them to Jesus and encourage them and allow the Holy Spirit to work in them the way that the Holy Spirit was going to work in them. And, and, and I think when we disciple people in these categories, it's really important that we're actually listening to our disciples because sometimes we get a question like, well, how can we help people in this category? It's like, well, if you've got a guy who can't stop looking at pornography, you probably don't need to spend a long time talking about, you know, the labels he's using as he describes his experience. But you might have another guy his who is not struggling with pornography or he's not, you know, pursuing same-sex relationships, but he's really dealing with a lot of internalized shame because he grew up in the church. You just you need to actually listen to your disciple right. and figure out what does he need and he doesn't need for you to bring this up in every single conversation but he also doesn't need you to never bring it up because mm. some people have had an interesting scenario where they disclose their sexuality and it seems to go well but then the person who's discipling them never brings it up again and they're like mm. are they ashamed are they embarrassed of me do they not know it can actually create a different type of tension Interesting. Yeah. Sounds like sort of impossible. Like, okay, so I'm supposed to mention it, but like not too much. Like, how will I know? Like the spirit will guide you. Right. You but go. it's, it's right. important. Like it is only a piece ever of somebody's life, but um, sometimes it's a big piece and sometimes it's a small piece. You just can't know um, unless you're talking to someone. It's so, like early in my discipleship years, this was a major discipleship need right now in my life. Same-sex attraction is not nearly as important as me figuring out um, how to relate to my seven-year-old daughter. You know what I mean? Right, so right. Like, <laughs> like, it's just different. Yeah, that's good. That's so true. And knowing someone's story, and and that's, I think that's where we often get ourselves in trouble is we, we're so quick to want to to do the thing, right? We're so yeah, quick. we to want a program. Yeah, rather yeah. than knowing someone's story and literally walking and then, as you said, walking with you through your story and how, yeah. how Jesus is engaging you guys. And um, I think that that's so Im- important. I- I'm curious, Rachel, we've talked about how just, you know, Christ followers can relate. But what, what do you feel is the role of um, pastors and ministry leaders? You've got their ear right now, right? Yeah. Um, how do you think they should be approaching um you know, the whole LGBTQ conversation and those types of things yeah. or, or things they should or should not be doing from, from your experience and your observation. Yeah. I mean, that could be a whole, I mean, there's whole seminars on this, right? But yes. <laughs> there are some really important, there, there are some really important principles. So Good. especially for those of us in North America, right? This is the, it's one of the most important conversations that's happening right now. It was like in 2006 already, Barna was reporting that 
nine out of 10 people used homophobic to describe Christians, right? So if you, right, right. If you think this isn't an issue for us, it is an issue for you if you care at all about the great commandment to like love <laughs> or the great commission to go make right. disciples, right? It yeah. matters. So I think one of the things we need to do is actually talk about it. There are still too many churches that just aren't talking about it. But it's really hard to talk about it alone if you have a terrible record of actually holding your congregation to account on things like pornography. Mm. The One of the worst things you can do is hold uh, LGBT people or same-sex attracted people to an incredibly high biblical sexual standard and hold everyone else in your congregation to a really low sexual standard. Mm. What we need is for our pastors and ministry leaders to desire to create in their spaces uh, a call towards the very high sexual ethic that God has laid out in the scriptures with an equal call towards uh, repentance and forgiveness and grace along the journey. Like every single one of us experiences and expresses our sexuality in ways that fall short of God. So we need to talk about same-sex attraction while we're talking about the other ways that we need growth and development when it comes to obeying Christ in our sexuality. So I wouldn't encourage people necessarily to do a whole series on LGBT issues. I might encourage them to say, why don't we, maybe in preaching, maybe in smaller group teaching sessions, why don't we talk about sexuality, period, so we can uh, equalize it with the many other things that are important. I also think in ministry spaces, we need to reckon with uh, whether we are treating singleness as a vocation that has equal dignity and honor as marriage. Because one of the things that can happen, most same-sex attracted disciples will not marry. And so if you're, if the life of a single person in your church or ministry looks like death and abandonment, you shouldn't be surprised if a same-sex attracted disciple doesn't want to stay there. Mm -hmm. God has called us, each of us, either to faithful singleness or faithful marriage between a man and a woman, right? And so we right. need each other, and we need to be able to broadcast both of those as life-giving and good. Yeah, that's that's excellent advice. Um, and and, and I, I so agree that we really have a challenge with um, the church oftentimes as a challenge, not not intentionally even, but uh, just sometimes it just sort of happens unintentionally that we, we're holding, you know, singleness as, you know, a second rate life um, in, in that. Well, we have. Yeah. We've believed with the culture that you're only a full or happy person if you are romantically partnered. It's called salvation by romance. And in the Christian church, we just make sure you seal it with marriage outside. You can, it's just sealed with consent, right? Right. And so we just believe that you are not full or happy until you're partnered, which is yeah. extremely unbiblical um, and deadly to our congregations. And it can make God look like a liar, actually, if you basically teach your youth, if you're a good little boy or girl, God will reward you with a spouse with whom you'll have perfect sex forever. Right. Right. And so if you do have someone who is faithful and obedient and God doesn't provide them a spouse, I'm not even talking about attractional patterns right here, or they do get married and sex is really hard. Well, suddenly everything they think they've been taught 
looks untrue because what they were taught was untrue. We have to be very careful that we're not lying about what God has promised. And that happens a ton in the ways that we talk about marriage. Yes, that's so true. So let's talk um, a little bit about you, Rachel, since we're on the um, topic of of marriage. Um, Despite being attracted to women, you are married uh, to To Andrew. Yeah, Yeah, right. A man named Andrew, right. Um, So a marriage like yours is likely pretty much outside the box for many Christians to even, you know, kind of think through, wrap their mind around. It's easy for us to expect, expect really that God would either, you know, remove your same sex desires or that you would remain single, right? Yeah. So can you tell us about how you ended up pursuing marriage, what that what that looked like, and what has God taught you through uh, your marriage to Andrew? Yeah, those are really great questions. And they're, they're also in a broader context where uh, in the 80s and 90s, sometimes beyond, there were certain churches and ministries who really wanted to pressure same-sex attracted people to enter into heterosexual marriages because there was this sort of belief that that would sort of, that would prove that you were really in it, or this hope that if you had enough straight sex, that that would make you straight. Mm. But the reality is straight sex can't make you straight. And, and forcing people into marriage because you think it'll fix them uh, devastates a lot more than just that person. It devastates whole communities. Mm. So we want to be really cautious that marriage is possible, but it is not required. And this again tags back to, we need to hold out singleness as dignified and good. But God will call some of us to be married. And the the great thing is, I don't have to be attracted to all men to be faithfully married to one man. If God calls me to marriage, he will give me exactly what I need. This is really helpful. It helps to see that while the Bible says no to same-sex lust, and sexual relationships. The, the question isn't, uh, should I feel really, really guilty about having desires at all? The question is more, how can I be faithful in the midst of any set of desires, right? And so God has called all of us to those two equal paths. And so then I don't have to worry. <laughs> if I'm single, then I should be um, not having sex with anyone. And if I'm married, I need to be only having sex with one person. So that actually means most of us are not having sex with most people. Right. <laughs> lusting after most people. So actually the skills required are basic to the Christian life, right? It's about, it's about learning how to train our desires through the power of the spirit so that we can say yes to Christ and no to what is actually deadly to us. So sometimes these marriages kind of get portrayed as if they're wild but i'm like i don't i don't know as i talk to my other married friends they're actually pretty similar like i when if i see someone who i'm attracted to who's not my spouse i need by the power of the spirit to say no to that and to figure out positive ways to uh, to channel desire and deal with that that person in front of me right just like the single person has to do so i want to demystify them a little bit i mean all kinds of marriages can have challenges around sexuality. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that doesn't get talked about enough, right? Like just because you've got two straight people doesn't mean you have a healthier functioning sexual relationship. So it can actually be helpful, I think, for the church to think about what it would take for a same-sex attracted person to enter into a marriage because it highlights 
my husband and I had to think before marrying, what is the purpose of marriage? What is this for? Are we suited for this? Like, is God calling us? To, it, it became a very intentional, healthy process where sometimes some of us are encouraged to enter into marriage just because we're like, you know, we've fallen in love or whatever. And it's this big chaotic feeling. And we're like, it's just good. Let's just do it. It's so great. God can use that too. But there's something really helpful about an opportunity to soberly reflect and to take it seriously. I say soberly reflect. I married when I was 22. Can 22 year olds soberly reflect on anything? <laughs> and, and But still it was right. a helpful process for me. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's excellent. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about terminology. Um, there, there are some. <laughs> you dis- want to get me in trouble? We're not. Well, no, I, I we're not going to go into a real deep conversation. Just, there's just one <laughs> real question that that I, I have for you on this. There are disagreements among Christians about what terminology is and is not really helpful. Um, kind way to put it. Yeah, for your experience. Okay, so some Christians are okay with the term gay, uh-huh. while others, queer. right? While others opt for the term same sex attracted. So what are your thoughts on on kind of those those two terms? Are they yeah. interchangeable? Is one more helpful than the other? I have so many thoughts on this, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot. At base, I think that LGBT language, gay, queer, lesbian, things like that, when used by a disciple is unhelpful. I think it's ambiguous. Uh, I think that it can lead us to put too much attachment into that part of our lives uh, in ways that can be unhealthy. And so I've found the same sex attracted label just more helpful. And honestly, there are more people who experience same sex attraction than experience it exclusively or to a level where they'd want to identify as gay. So I find it more helpful term because it it just hits more people. There's some people who experience same-sex attraction, but they wouldn't identify as gay because it's a smaller part of their experience or whatever. But you have to acknowledge that same-sex attraction was a, a phrase used in the reparative therapy movement. And so for some people, it is tied in with some of the problems in that movement. And some of that movement was trying to help people become straight, which I don't think is the goal of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So for a certain population, same-sex attracted is just not, it's not going to work for them. It it is too connected to pain from that period. So for people in that camp, I have a deep respect for not wanting to use that label. I gave you my quick version. I mean, I could go in depth about why I'm concerned about LGBT language. But I'm just as concerned with people who want to go on a witch hunt about people for using LGBT language. Mm. It maybe concerns me more, uh, especially because the church has been so bad at loving LGBT people. To recognize when someone, I have a friend who grew up on the mission field who realized at an early age, uh uh-oh, I'm gay. And he was just the perfect church boy in so many ways, right? And he just told himself, I'm never going to tell anyone. And he lived with this all-encompassing shame and fear. And when he finally, through a different process, was able to come out first to himself, and then to his family, and to his community, using the word gay to describe his experience was actually a way of freeing himself from the power that that word had over him. Sometimes people are using LGBT language because of the past that they have 
it's actually, it can be useful for some people. It's part of their process. And people in that camp are often living a very costly obedience. They are saying, yes, I experience these desires, but I'm going to say no to them and yes to Christ. And they're hearing from the LGBT community that they're homophobic and repressed. And then they're getting screamed at by the church that they shouldn't use LGBT language. Mm. I'm not sure that's what Christ was talking about when he said, let's love one another. Right. So I do have concerns about LGBT language. I, and especially for younger disciples, but I always want to approach that concern from listening well to the person in front of me. Why does this language feel helpful to you? And also giving them space to walk in that language if that's what they choose is helpful. Like I'm going to lay out here are my concerns, but like she has to decide how she's going to follow the Lord. Right. Um, And so if our concern is coming from a place of love, I think it's going to land differently than how it's landed in some of these conversations. Yeah, no, I love, I think that's, that's very helpful. Very, very helpful and well said. And I like that you took the time and I know you said you could go a lot deeper um, and take even more time. But I, I love that you took the time to, to kind of show the balance and explain more of the narrative and the story behind um, the, the terminology and how people's own identification experiences with the, the terms um, relate to that. Because I think oftentimes we're quick just to, uh, we want to, we want to, and it's good intentions. We want to not say something that's going to be offensive, right? Sure. Um, so, so in our mind, we're like, okay, what's the right answer? <laughs> and and um, the right answer is we kind of need to know the the person's story and we need to start yeah, with we absolutely do, and we need to know our missional context it's not it's not usually helpful for people to walk in just using a bunch of lgbt languages if we're in conservative christian spaces right because then everyone's alarms are going off and you're not going to be actually able to say things that are helpful because you're going to get stuck on the language conversation in other contexts you might not choose to use same-sex attractive because it could be a type of barrier. We, right. I'm a missionary full-time, right? And missionaries learn how to use language. We don't just care about what I mean. We care about how is the person receiving what I'm saying? That's a basic missionary task, right? So when I'm thinking about language, I'm thinking about all kinds of things, including how is the person in front of me going to receive it? And that's deeply important. But we, we're fools if we don't know that the language we use to identify ourselves impacts us deeply. And it's not just with sexuality language. Right. If my main descriptor of myself is an American Christian, the emphasis might end up showing up more and more and more and more on my nationality than on my faith in Christ. And that's just as much of a problem. Right. Right. So all kinds of adjectives can weasel their way into the center of our lives. We have to be very careful with all kinds of things. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Uh, Rachel, tell me if, if those who are listening in today, it's been an incredible conversation, by the way. Um, they want to to learn more um, about you've written a couple books. I know that you write regularly for some some different publications. What's the best way for them to kind of connect with with you and your writings and those types of things? I wish it were Twitter. I am on Twitter at <laughs> Rachel Gilson, but I'm I'm more of a lurker than I am a poster. <laughs> My website is pretty good, rachelgilson.com lists, um, you know, my book and the chapters. I'm actually thinking right now, gosh, I need to update that website. I'm bad at technology, but you can find me. <laughs> if you Google around Rachel Gilson, you'll find the things. 
Excellent. That, that's perfect. Yeah. Any any final words um, to the pastors and ministry leaders who are listening in right now before we close down our conversation? I think my final words would be, I just want you to feel permissioned to love. Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners and he got called names for it, but he didn't stop loving. If you are loving the people in your life, conservative church people are going to accuse you of things that aren't true. Uh, but when we when we're receiving the same treatment for the same reasons as Christ, we're, um, we're not in a bad situation. That's good. That's good. This has been such an incredible conversation with you, Rachel. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. Be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.